This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I had a pile of money that was about three and a half, four foot tall, nine feet long, and weighed over a ton. The F-250 van that I was loading, the armored van, when I started, the, the back bumper was pretty high up on me. When I was done, it was pretty low, right? If I do this, I'm going to take enough money so that I won't have to ever come back because I won't be able to. So you're out of the country before they even know the place has been robbed. Yeah. I'm eating lunch in Mexico about the time the news breaks. Loomis was robbed, and these two knuckleheads were living in a double wide they just bought a multi-million dollar mansion in this small town with cash. Yeah. They're driving expensive vehicles, and the guy's a knucklehead, you know, and somehow or another he's come up with all this cash. Yeah. And they've decided they're going to kill, they're going to kill me. Right. And he's going to hire, he's got a buddy, McKinney, and they're going to hire him. He's going to go down to Mexico and kill me. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I am here with David Gant. David Gant was—he's—should uh, I say bank robber? A bank robber, or, or that's usually the, the, that the title they, I end up with. Yeah, bank robber for uh, uh, um, Loomis Fargo, one of the largest Loomis Fargo uh, robberies in history. It was seventeen point five million dollars, and it was—they—they they say this over and over again—that it was literally a ton of cash. And uh, so we're going to do an interview, and I appreciate you guys watching. And so check this out. Like I like we were saying, uh, I was saying earlier, I actually, and I know I'm recapping all this, but I actually, prior to getting in trouble myself, watched a program on you, and then I watched another one where I think I was incarcerated, and then I was, and and it always reminded me of a story when, that I wrote in prison and I kept going back to your story because the story I wrote was very similar to yours um but it's one of those stories that always stuck in my mind so when like my booking agent and my girlfriend got in touch with you I'm sorry my wife got in touch with you and my booking agent like I immediately usually people have to tell me like you know I'm like who is this guy can you send me a link I don't know who that is he did what but as soon as they mentioned uh no, no, he did this. I was like, oh, I know exactly who you're talking about. I remember watching a, a documentary. Like, I was immediately excited. That's why my girlfriend or my my wife kept texting. I was like, you got to get this guy to come on here. Like, he's got a great story. So, anyway, that's that's kind of how I knew um, the whole thing. So, but basically, what I typically do is just start at the beginning. Like, I'm like, I'm not. We're not in a hurry or anything. So, you know, like, where where were you born? Okay. I was born in uh, Gastonia, North Carolina, and on October 20th, 1969. Um, really average, um, upper middle class, lower middle, uh, middle class family. 
good education, um, just a normal southern upbringing. Right. Um, hunting, fishing, motorcycles, nothing out of the ordinary. Right. And then you ended up going into the military? Yeah. Um, my hometown, Gastonia at the time, was, what's a good word? They were economically not very diverse, and so I didn't have a lot of options, I felt. And so I, I went into the military and uh, became a Apache crew chief. All right. Were you in, I mean, did you see any action or? Um, what year was this, by the way? Sorry. Let's see, that was 89 or so. And it was, I went to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, came back, and things at home really hadn't changed. And uh, got married. And I spent some time down in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, uh, working as a working at a fixed base operation, which is a airplane refueling operation. Was that for the military? Nope. This was a private one. This is after you got out. After I got out, and um, eventually, uh, my wife at the time got—I usually say she got homesick, but we went back to Gastonia, and there was there was hardly anything for me. And one day I saw an ad in the newspaper, Armored Car Guard, top top dollar paid, which was a huge fib. And uh, I put in an application, and next thing I knew, they they hired me and yeah, put but, me to work. I mean, those guys never like for for the amount for the responsibility, like they never they they get paid horrible. Oh yeah, you know, like it may be top dollar for that field, but that field is notorious for having horrible a horrible pay scale do you like i the guy i the guy that i um had written the story about his name was a uh, jamal and he basically he got a concealed weapons permit and he said a concealed weapons permit and a few months as a security guard he said having like 90 days or I think it was like six months as a security guard and having his concealed weapons permit. He's like, that was all the qualifications I needed that and not being a felon. I mean, did you need a security? Yeah. yeah. Um, they, they run a credit check on you. They do a felony background check. They make you take a firearms course. And it's, it's always amazed me what those guys and ladies get paid to be responsible for a, a huge armored truck. And then all the paperwork involved, you're dealing with professional customers every day. You might go to 100 stops you know, a day, and they pay them peanuts. He's been known to cure insecurity just with his laugh. His organ donation card lists his charisma. His smile is so contagious. Vaccines have been created for it. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crime, but when I do, it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. So you got you got the job, and the job it's broken up into. I mean, I, I just know from having written that story was it's broken up to everybody has a different responsibility, right? Like you've got the driver, you've got the runner, you've got the. Isn't there the loader or something like the guy that loads the machines or something? I mean, yeah, the the ATM people. Um, the basic jobs that you found that you would find at Armory Car Company is the very basic is the driver. He knows the route, knows nothing much else. 
He runs the radio. And then you have, we called him a messenger. He's the guy that goes into the bank. Um, and the he does all the paperwork. He knows the route forwards and backwards. Knows all of his customers. Knows which keys they need. And he's basically the boss of the truck. And then a third one would be the ATM guys. And they fill up all the ATMs. There's a myriad of other things behind the scenes. But they're but they're not those like the ATM guys and the messenger and driver. Like they're not they're not going out at the same time, right? Like they're on two different routes, right? Yeah, like, they're, they're usually on different routes. The ATM guys usually keep to themselves. Okay. Um, and once you get the money, you go back to like a warehouse, like a secured warehouse, and unload the money and they count the money and um there's a whole separate crew that uh counts all the money they have a money room and the the messenger he never actually touches raw cash money never it's always bagged with an address never an amount and right so you you get your manifest in the morning you load your truck, triple check everything, sign it off, and you go out on your route. Um, so, but you start. So you started as a messenger. No, I started off as a driver. Oh, okay. Um, I drove the Hickory Run for close to a year. Um, Hickory's a little town up north of Charlotte. Okay. Um. And so when did you, you, I thought you said you had become a messenger or then you went to a met. Yeah, there was a, I'll call it an incident at Wells Fargo. And um, I ended up becoming a, a messenger and then later a vault superintendent. What, I mean, what was that like layoffs or was that the layoffs or? Yeah, they had a, a, a large layoff and a lot of people, we were really shorthanded and a lot of people got promoted I probably got promoted. I probably should have never been promoted probably past driver. Um, to be brutally honest, I was really good at being driver. I understood right. the route. I knew all the safety procedures, and I was really good at it. And I probably should have never went past that. Um, so had, I, I have a question because, like I said, I, the only reason I know this is, like, has money come up missing before? Does it just come up missing sometimes? Um, I'm sure it does. Um, usually the biggest thing was they would lose coins because they, they, they have them boxed up. And one of, one of our horror stories was bad rainstorm. Guy got caught in. He was out taking in a load of coin. The boxes got wet, busted. Coins go everywhere. And... They, they had to go out there with brooms and uh, sweep, paint, it up. sweep it all up. The, the guy, um, Jamal, that I did the, the story on, he told me that one time a guy came and turned in the bags, right? Like, here's, you know, the messenger came in, here's the bags, here's the bags. Gave him, he said he scanned them all in, and, like, the, the, the manifest or whatever, he's like, okay, you're missing a bag. You're, you're missing, like, 60 grand. And he said, and the guy that had been there, like, three years and he was like no he goes yeah he said yeah look shows him and he goes huh 
So he goes back and he's like, let me check the truck. Goes back in, checks the truck. Comes back. He goes, it's not in the truck. He goes, are you sure? He goes, I'm just telling you. Says you're supposed to have eight bags. You got seven. Like, and he's like, oh, wow. And he said, okay. He goes, he said, so he makes a note. He said, I guess they'll figure it out later. I don't know. He said, he made a note, turned it in, explained the whole thing. Guy went home. Guy came back the next day. They talked to him. He's like, no, I mean, yeah. They said, they called the branch. They were like, you picked it up. He's like, what well, should be here? It just acted like, I don't know. And he ended up not getting, like, they didn't fire him. They were like, it's just, I don't know what happened. They kept him on. Like, he had just lost, I want to say it was 60 grand, but it may have been 30. Um, I know I knew there was two different events. Then he said, he said that, like, they literally kept him on. He was listening. He was about two weeks later. He shows up on a brand new $12,000 motorcycle. And I was like, I was like, no. He said, <laughs> I swear he is when I, he is. I remember looking at him going, nice bike. And he goes, yeah, you like that? And just kept on walking like, yeah. And he's like, like, I just took him for this. They didn't, nothing happened to him. Now, another time there was, he said there was a woman, same basic thing, but she had pulled up. And so when they checked the, when she showed up, same thing, I'm missing money. They were like, that's weird. They went back and checked the, the um, surveillance and she had stopped the vehicle, got out, went to her car and came back. And they were like, no, something's wrong. So they actually called the police, went to her car, and found the money. She was fired. And he goes, but the thing is, he's like, I don't – they recovered the money. He goes, they just fired her. They didn't press charges or anything. Because they don't want the publicity. Right. They don't want that in the news. They don't want to be in the news at all. Um, One of the the things I do remember is we had a a messenger. He went all around. He went for like five or six stops on his route. And I think there was like $175,000 cash there was a, a little spot on the back bumper. And this bag, big cloth bag, fit right in that little nook. Right. And he rode around, I think it was Mooresville. I'm not sure. But it's somewhere in western North Carolina. He rode around for like an hour and a half with $175,000 on the back of on the bumper of the truck. Just Did he stop? Did it fall off? Did he stop and notice it? Or? Uh, he, uh, when he got to his next stop, he noticed. And, you know, but it, it Wow. I mean, yeah. Well, so, I mean, I know, you know, I think obviously what they want to do is they want, they want the public to feel like, Hey, this is a super secure industry. We dot all our, uh, all our I's. We cross all our T's. It's super secure. Everybody's paid well. Everybody's trained. They're all professional. But the truth is that's, that's not what's really happening. Um, basically on that, the, the emperor has no clothes, right? You know, um, you go to, uh, I look back on it now, and the gun training we got was poor. Um, you're firing a, an old, they used a 38 Special back then, and the range is maybe seven, eight feet to the target, and it's a huge, it's bigger than life-size target. And you only need to hit it about eight out of ten times. And you get to, everybody gets to fire a shotgun, and it's, it's, it's a really sad joke. It's, he he was saying uh, the guy I had interviewed. He was like, they, they tell you like like give up the money. Like if you're yeah. in a crowded place, give up the money. Like don't we don't want pedestrian shot. We don't don't get into a gunfight. If they show somebody shows up pulls a gun, you're in a crowded place. Do you know give up the money immediately? Do what they say. You got a better chance of survival. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Blah. They basically they tell you run away. Yeah. And and if the driver is watching you because they're supposed to watch you in the mirror, not all of them do. He sees you run away. 
he's supposed to drive away as well. Oh, okay. That way, you lose that one stop. Right. And that's it. Um, okay, so, um, so I mean, what happened? You're you're working there, and you're you're working overtime. You're not making great pay. You're you're married. You're you're you know, is your wife work? Yeah, my wife at the time worked. Okay. Did you have kids? No, no kids. Okay. Um, what happened was overtime. You know, the stress of the job and the stress of my life. We just bought a house two new cars and we're getting by, but just bare, as long as I keep working long hours, we'll be fine. And that, that started to wear on me. And, you know, I probably had other issues from before and it starts to build up and I'm getting, I got desperate. And then when they came and suggested this to me, it looked like a way out. Right. Who, who suggested this? Um, Kelly Campbell and her uh, friend. Uh, Chris? Uh, not one Chris. It was, uh, um, I'm probably going to get hate mail now for not remembering the guy's name. Um, Chambers. Oh, Chambers, Chambers. Yeah. Was John Chambers? Or what was his first name? Oh, hell. Chambers. Something Chambers. Something okay. Chambers. Yeah, I just actually just watched, you know, earlier. I actually, I can picture him, you know, um, he was like a, a like a, a thought he was like a mob guy or something, but he was actually just a small time kind of petty yeah. crook. He'd um, been in prison before too, right? He didn't I, he get in trouble? I don't know. Yeah, he he. Well, I I know that what they said was he had actually, um, he'd actually had problems with the law before, and I believe they said he had had a a federal case before. I don't know if he did prison time, but he definitely had had like a federal case. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I've never really cared enough to dig <laughs> you know what's funny is that just talking to you like i would meet guys in prison and they would some guys would come to me and say hey this guy's got an amazing story you have to hear his story and then we'd go and we'd sit down and talk and i'd take notes and just to see if it was worth writing a story and they didn't know a ton of stuff about their case. Like they never looked into it. Like they got sentenced. They knew they got five years. I got to do five years. And then they just kicked back and they walked the track. They joined a softball game. Maybe yeah. they learned to play an instrument. They read books. They're like, I just going to whittle away this time. And they never looked into it. Some guys didn't look into it because they were just like, I can't believe I'm here. I don't want to think about it. And other guys, I just don't think that they realized they could look into it. And so, I would interview these guys, and they didn't. If I decided to write their story, I would order the Freedom of Information Act on them. I'd get their case file, I'd get all the notes and the interviews, and I would be able to come to them and say, "Here's what happened. Remember, you said this, and you didn't know why that was. Here's what happened." And then I'd tell them what the FBI file said. This yeah. person got arrested. He cooperated. He told this guy. They contacted the FBI, and that—that's why they were waiting for you. And, but, you know, so you not knowing isn't – I'm not laughing at you. I'm just – it's like I'm amazed because I'm so super inquisitive about everything. I would have just like – I would have been – that whole five years or however much time, you know, you did, I would have been looking into it the whole time. Yeah, I, I think my attitude was it doesn't really concern me. I really don't care. You just um, wanted to get to I just want to do my time. Right. And I spent most of my time playing softball, reading books – um, I studied a lot of psychology books, um, and read 
I must have read 15, 20 self-help books because I came to a realization that there was something slightly wrong with me and we needed to address that. Yeah, that this was an option. This was, this, you know. Because for most people, it's, which always kills me, is like as desperate as they get. And I get the the, the desperation because I've been, I mean, I'm kind of like in this, I mentioned this to my wife all the time. I'm like, listen, like we're a bad car accident or a medical issue where, you know, we're, we're, if anything goes wrong, we go down like the Titanic, you know, maybe oh, we yeah. can go for a month or two, but that's it. And, and that worries me. And, and so I get exactly what you're saying, but t- what most people don't think is, Hey, I can do this. M- most people don't think I can commit a crime, um, and correct this issue. And, you know, I think obviously that's what separates people, you know, obviously, you know, criminals from or people that have criminal intent. I think anybody will commit a crime in the right situation. But to me, my one of my first my first thought is. Fraud. Here's how I'll fix it. Fraud. You know, and then I have to now I realize eh, it's probably what you probably do is work a little harder, you know, cut back a little bit more. But you but. Kelly came to you. Yeah. And she proposed the the thought, you know, how do you feel about Robin Fargo? And she knew I wasn't real keen on the company. Right. Um, because I we had a superintendent uh or manager threaten threaten my job and thought I'm I'm thinking about going going away anyway. Um and I said, you know, it would it really wouldn't be that hard. It's just a matter of what day and understanding that the weekend schedule it would be the easiest and you'd have the most time to get away right i said it'd have to be on the weekend probably a saturday would be easiest that's when there'll be you know back then charlotte vault had a very strict schedule it was like every other saturday it was a fairly large amount of money in the vault cash as opposed to certain weekends it'd be 98 percent checks um, back back when we used paper checks back in the dinosaur days i still write checks i still write them nobody else does i'll my, be on, i haven't laughs at me i haven't written a paper check in <laughs> that would have been back in like 2015 <laughs> you're hipper than i am i just got out oh i'm a big i'm a big guy on convenience and utility you know um so okay so here's the 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 my my next question is but you didn't think to yourself yeah we could set up a robbery or we could a bag could go missing uh, we could get a couple hundred thousand you thought I can empty out the entire vault of seventeen million dollars and walk away clean. Yeah, um, that's a huge leap. Well, here's my thought: if you're going to break the law, <laughs> go all in, all in, or don't go. Right. You know, because uh, what was that movie? I think it was Heat, where he, where the bad guy told the cop, "See, you think I got born to lose tattooed on my chest? I'm robbing Seven Elevens? No, no, no. Right. And I'd I'd seen that movie prior to doing this. I'm all. You know he's got a point. That is one of my favorite movies, by the way. It is, um, from a from my point of view as prior military and you know seeing the gunfight, the gun battle, the run. That's uh, probably one of the 
coolest running gun battles yeah. you'll ever see in a and movie. Most realistic. And too. very realistic. Extremely realistic. Yeah, because they're they're actually reloading, they're moving from point to point, and it it goes back to military. If you're not shooting, you need to be moving. If you're not moving, you need to be reloading. Um yeah, De Niro and and uh, uh, Pacino. That's a great man. That's a great. Movie. I I, don't want, I want to watch that movie again. Um, um, so, okay, so I mean, so you got so how long does it take before you decide? You know what? This is. Um, I mean, clearly your wife's not going to be okay with it. Oh no, I knew I knew that that she would she would lose her shit if I'd have mentioned it, and I'm thought oh. And I, I come to the realization that I'm going to have to walk away from everything. And I'm weighing it in my head. This goes on for uh, four or five days. And I go, all right, I'm going to go for it. I've never done anything outrageous in my life. This is it. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to probably end up down in Costa Rica, sitting on a beach, fishing, and... That's where I want to go. That's what I'm going to do. Are, are, were you thinking about changing your identity or how, how are you going to get out of the country? Is any of that a concern? And Well, I thought about it backwards. I thought, well, where do I want to go? How am I going to get there? And I looked into the Cayman Island banks. I looked into Costa Rica. And I, I looked at the FBI and how, some crime statistics. And I figured, okay. Most criminals stay in a, like a five hundred, three or five hundred mile circle of their home. The cops catch a lot of people at their mama's house, right? Okay, because when they people know they've done something wrong, they want they want to feel safe, and they don't want to leave that little bubble. I'm like, okay, if I get outside that bubble, my my chances increase. So I've got to get out of the country as quickly as possible, and. Well, I mean, for for one thing, just just leaving your home is gutsy. Yeah, I, I mean, people don't realize that they don't. You know, you have to walk away from everything that you, every comfort, everything that makes you feel comfortable. You have to leave, and most people don't leave. You know, ninety five percent of the country never leaves the United States. You know, half those ever leave even the state that they live in. You know, so so it it's you're picking up, leaving, not calling, not coming back, not. Just walking away from everything like that alone, even if you weren't already wanted, yeah, and you know that's already gutsy. So, so my my other question is: Did you think that there was going to be heat on you? Did you think that the media would get? Were you thinking this will be in the news? This or did you think, oh, there'll be an article and that'll be it? I knew it would be a big story, okay, especially for that area, um, because even before I really came up with a solid plan. What I thought was a solid plan. I knew about how much money it would be. I knew it would be more than 10 and less than 20, 20 million. And uh, I knew that would be a huge story. There had been a, a, a Loomis Fargo had been robbed like a year or two earlier of like 18 million. Did you know about that? Yeah, it was big news. Matter of fact, it was the. I can't remember if he robbed the Tallahassee branch or the Jacksonville branch. Jacksonville, I think. I think yeah, it was, it was the Jacksonville branch, which is where I live now. <laughs> so, um, and I've met that guy. Really? He, well, at the time, he was he was a little messed up, but 
Yeah. You met him after? Oh, no. I met him, like, in passing in prison. Oh, okay. And I was like, okay. Um, but he was a completely different type thing. He kidnapped the dude. And, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. It was a mess. But I think he beat me by a few million. Right. Yeah, his was like 18. I want to say, because I remember thinking that was it was roughly about a million more. And I was thinking yours was 17. It was 17.5. But I was thinking 17. I think they said 18. So I remember thinking it was about a million. It was roughly a million. Um. So, uh, okay, so, so uh, what about Kelly? Like, why, like, everything I saw, they said you and Kelly were close, that you, you, you know, you guys hung out together. Was... Um, when I first started at Fargo, I was um, friends with her driver. All the drivers kind of hang out together. And so I ended up talking to Kelly, and I ended up driving for her for quite a while. And we, we just hit it off. Okay, so when she came to you, you just trusted her, you were friends. But she she wasn't there anymore, though, right? Yeah, she had quit, got fired. I'm not really sure. Once again, it's one of those things where it, it didn't concern me. I didn't look into it. So you fought, so you decided you were going to do it. You talked to her. Talked to her. And... Um, what was the plan? The basic plan was for them to get me a, a fake ID, which we did. Which back then was way easier. And what would what would what I would do was we'd pick a Saturday and I would basically empty the vault. At first they only wanted me to take I think he said two hundred and fifty thousand and then he came back, I'll get one or two million. I'm like, No, we're not doing that. If I do this, I'm gonna take enough money so that I won't have to ever come back because I won't be able to. Okay. And as it worked out, the original plan was I wanted to get at least 15, which worked out pretty good. And it was like, here's your five. Here's your five. Just make sure you deliver my five. Anything that's left after that, you can have. You can keep it. I only want my five. And they were, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And I didn't know that they were already planning to vote me off the island. Right. So, this is this is like thir- almost thirty years thirty years ago. Close to it, yeah. The five it was million dollars thirty years ago. Yeah. Um, That's a ton of money. Imagine if we'd have got that money to the Cayman Islands back then, because back then the Cayman Islands were wide open and paying really good interest. Jeez, you could have gotten it. I mean, they would have issued it, you a, a citizenship and a passport, probably oh, with just yeah. Like, I mean, they've got no. St. Kitts right now. I think if you you buy a, you just buy a piece of property for like $350,000, they'll mm-hmm. give you a passport. Um, they'll make you a, a an economic, they have economic, economic citizen. Economic citizen, yeah. 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 Um, um, so, so what happened? So that day you, you just decide, hey, I'm going to, you're going to be, you guys are going to be waiting. I'll let you know when I, I mean, you grab the money and what happened? And so I picked October the 4th. Um, I, I knew about what was going to be in the vault and went into work just, just normal. Right. Um, I think we met one or two more times. Um, and we made a run to get my big quote unquote fake ID, um, which was just a state ID. Um, 
Yeah, I was going to say the FBI, when they interviewed, like, your friends, your wife, um, uh, friends from the military, like, every single one of them, your wife, too, she was like, no, like, nothing, nothing has changed. Like, he is, he is you know, on a, a schedule. He's always the same, behaved like you didn't very like even made like a, a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment or something. You had even made like an appointment for like the week or two prior to that. Like, like you were going to be there, like everything, like there's nothing that says this guy should not have come home that day. And everything, you know, went to the grocery store, did this, did that, you know, whatever, walked the dog, took the garbage, like didn't argue. There was no fight. There was nothing like everything. And all of the, everything was the same. And all of your, your buddies were like, this is absolutely 100% uncharacteristic of this guy. This is a guy that follows the rules. This is a hard worker. This guy's conscientious. This is, you know, this is, you know, they said if there was anything, I remember one of the guys had said that there, if there was anything abnormal about you at all, they said he's kind of a loner. Yeah. That was it. Like, that's like the worst, that's like the worst thing they could say about you. You know, he is kind of a loner. Like, so, which I guess, is to say he is the kind of guy that he's not afraid to be alone or walk away. A lot of guys have to be social. Yeah. That I've, was it. I've never been a social butterfly. Yeah, you know? that's um So this was just totally out of character for me. And, and now that I'm much older, you I had to be a cold hearted SOB. I had to be. That was the only way you had to put on that mask and wear it all the way to the door. Um because if, if I'd acted any different, the whole world would have known. Right. You know, because I did have a schedule. I got, I went to bed at the same time. I got up, I carried two sandwiches, an apple or some fruit. I mean, it was almost like I had some weird OCD, you know, because I carried the same thing for lunch almost all the time. And I'm I'm still that way. I, I love to have a schedule. Like being late today aggravated me you have no idea and it was everything that was completely out of my control right because I, I i like to be on time it's it it's i don't know if it's from the way i was raised but there's something about if i say i'm going to be here at noon i'm going to be there at 11 45 usually yeah, it's funny my dad and, and i actually say the same thing is that you know being on time is being 15 minutes early yeah um but you were only like 10 minutes late um, so, so you went into work and you, the trucks come in, you count the money, you check it in. What were yeah. you doing that day? Just checking um, it in. I was, uh, in charge of the vault and in the morning I made sure everybody got all their, all their loadout in the morning, make sure they had all their paperwork, sent them out. And then the rest of the day, you're pretty much sitting there listening to the radio, listening to the uh, company radio for the trucks. Um, if they have a problem, they call in, um, and you're basically just sitting there scratching your butt right. until they start coming back. And they call, uh, Kelly and them, they must've called me out how many times. Are you sure you're going to go through with this? I'm like, yeah, don't worry about me. You know, when I tell you I'm coming out the door, I'm coming out the door. Um, and finally, the truck started coming back, and uh, we had a guy that he was a messenger, and they had said, "Hey, 
we want you to stay with Dave, kind of learn it, and he'll be in charge, and he'll show you what to do. And worked with him. Great guy, though. I hate, I hate, I kind of hate I did that to him. But finally got to the last bit. I said, hey, man, if you want to take off, it's going to take me a while. If you want to take on off, I got you covered. So he leaves, and I mock lock up everything. Um, I don't set the timer on the vault, nothing. I don't, I don't spin the big wheel on it. I mock lock up, go out. I see his taillights going around the corner. I turn back around, go right back in the building, re disarm the the security system, move my van. And this is kind of where the plan goes to shit. Because I had planned on, there was two doors, they were offset, one at the front, one at the back. And I was planning on going out the back entrance. And for some reason, oh, I'll get to that, but for some reason it wasn't working that night. It didn't work that night. So I had to go. But anyway, I pushed uh the first bin out there, and uh, it was mostly small bills. And by the time I was done, I had a pile of money that was about three and a half, four foot tall, nine feet long, and weighed over a ton. The F-250 van that I was loading, the armored van, when I started, the, the back bumper was pretty high up on me. When I was done, it was pretty low. Right. <laughs> So, you. So th then, this is after every truck's already come in, dropped oh. off the money, and gone. Yeah, all the trucks are done. Nobody's coming back. Nobody's supposed to be coming back. In anything. You're and you're just there alone. I'm there alone. So you load up the. So you loaded up the truck. You get in the truck and you just. Well, you, yeah. Um, and I'd scouted out and found the security VHS tapes, and I'd secured two or three of them and I missed one somehow they had another recorder up in the ceiling yeah right and I didn't get that one yeah that's I was gonna say they they show the footage of that one yeah um, where they're like uh, I guess when the when eventually you leave and uh, they call in saying something's wrong yeah uh, you know when they show back up the next day or later that you know I think it was the next day they show up the next day and they start call people start calling in. You know, your wife's calling in. If people are calling in, they say, you know, he didn't show up. Um, there and and everything's open. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, the, it's completely wide open. When the FBI or the detectives come, and the FBI they find that tape, and I guess they had to wait for a manager, or somebody to come and open uh, the back to find the tape. But when they find it, yeah, the manager or. I don't know what he was the you know the, I'll say the manager of the place when he saw that it was you because they assumed you'd been kidnapped, somebody had taken the money, kidnapped you. They were concerned that you were were hurt because certainly he certainly had nothing to do with it. Um, and so when they saw you, they said like the manager, if you you, you got to watch it. The manager is like, oh my god, he's like that's David Gantz, that's David, that's like they were like he that's, yeah. he kept the FBI officers like that's he kept saying it over and over like oh my god like he, he was absolutely in shock yeah that you were that he was watching you load the vehicle and and to buy myself time i stole almost all their keys 
Right. Yeah, that slowed them down a, oh, yeah. a lot. Slowed them in also when they eventually found the truck. Yeah. Law enforcement often questions him, not because he's suspected of a crime, but because they find him fascinating. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crime, but when I do, it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. So what happened when you left there? Where did you go when you left with the truck? Let's see, what was the name of that place? It was some sort of aluminum recycling place where we met, and they had rigged the gate that when I pulled up, they, it would open. And I got out, and this guy comes walking up on me. And he says, don't worry, I'm with you. Just give me the keys. And I, I hand him the keys, and this becomes important later. I say, this is the keys to the van. They open all the doors. Don't. Don't put it in the box, the big box of keys. Okay, because I had a, a box in between the front seats filled with every key in Wells Fargo. Okay. This, we'll come back around to this. This becomes important later. And I get in a, I've already got my, my little bit of money I'm going to take with me because I, I didn't know how much money I could get through a metal detector with at the airport. I was unsure, you know. So I, I didn't take that much money. So Kelly and I get in her truck, and we go to Columbia, South Carolina, where they've got an airport. I didn't know at the time that their airport closed at, like, 9. So I ended up scrapping plan A, going on plan B, hop on a bus in Columbia, South Carolina, go from Columbia, South Carolina to Atlanta, Georgia, Hop on a plane in Atlanta from Atlanta to New Orleans, New Orleans to Cancun, Mexico. And you just, and back then you didn't need a passport, right? Didn't need a passport. So you're out of the country before they even know the place has been robbed. I'm eating lunch in Mexico about the time the news breaks. Um, so what was the, they were supposed to get you. Five million. Five million, yes. Okay. Um, and how much did you leave with? Probably about forty five or fifty thousand thereabouts. Okay. So you so what 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 when did you first see that it was on the news? Um, I had to since I was in Mexico I had to actually kinda dig and I found um what was it? I found a newsstand they had, might have been the New York, yeah, the New York Times, Times. and they had, it wasn't, it didn't make the front page, not for them, um, and I found a, a little blurb about it, I thought, okay, we're good, because I, I didn't think it was that big of a story, I thought, all right, good, I, I mean, I knew the FBI would be after me, but I didn't think that, I was pretty sure they wouldn't go digging in New Mexico hard. Right. But it, 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 it became bigger later, right? Like it didn't, it, when they started looking. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that, that takes us back to, um, you know, the van that they left with three million in it. I think it was. Yeah. They had and, an issue moving yeah. all, there was such a bulk because most of the money was in twenties, right? Yeah. 
So it was such, it was so there was so much mass to it that they couldn't move it all. Yeah, and they left like three and a half million in the in the. What I, what kills me is that they didn't come back for it. Yeah, like they just left it. Yeah, why would you leave money on the table? So right, to speak? exactly. Why wouldn't you? I mean, go remove the money, dump the money that you've got, come back. No yeah. one even knows it's gone yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, they weren't the brightest. Yeah. No, they weren't. And to be honest, neither was I. But. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, so do you know what the issues were once you were in Mexico? Do you know what the issue, why, you know, why they got onto them so quickly? Mm. I mean, you were saying you've never, you've never really watched any of this stuff. Well, my guess is this. We live in a small town. If you go from a double wide. <laughs> right. To a multi-million dollar mansion. In paying cash. Paying cash. And you go from driving a hoopty to driving a Beamer. You go from a cubic zirconium to an actual diamond. People notice. Yeah. And this guy tried to pass himself pass himself off as a professional, former professional football player. Right. And the, I don't know what you know about the, the lot of Football fans and you know people are rabid fans about their their football. Yeah, they knew he wasn't a, a cowboy from any season. Yeah, he he um his wife was telling her so they actually moved from the small town where they were in. They moved to not far yeah from where uh where the Loomis building where you'd rob the Loomis building and you know and they it was and it was already a little town but it happened to have a uh, this really nice gated community mm-hmm. and they bought that house there with cash. And when I say with cash, I don't mean like, you know, we typically people will say, Oh, I paid it cash, paid for it. Cash doesn't mean you paid for it in one lump sum with a check. It's literally this yeah. guy paid in cash. Yeah. So that raised huge red flags. Oh yeah, it would. His wife, um, what was his name again? Oh, chambers, 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 wife, Shoot! If I, I thought you were gonna know all these, or I would have a, I would have oh. written a list down. So his wife starts trying to launder the money, and literally walks into a bank, opens up a bag of cash, and says, "How much of this can I deposit before I have to fill out that the paperwork for the government?" And the woman says, "Like you know, well, up to ten thousand." She goes, "Okay." She goes, "Listen, it's not drug money." <laughs> Everything that you could have said that is going to get a suspicious activity report filed on you, you've just said drug money. How much? What's the what's the maximum limit that nobody won't be reported? I mean, everything that right then it's like this is so overly suspicious. And of course, they immediately fill out a, a a report. And not just that, but people start calling. Friends of theirs start calling, saying, or you know, friends starts calling, saying, listen. Loomis was robbed, and these two knuckleheads were living in a double wide. They just bought a multi-million dollar mansion in this small town with cash. Yeah. They're driving expensive vehicles, and the guy's a knucklehead, you know, and somehow or another he's come up with all this cash. Yeah. So immediately, it, the FBI get on to them. Oh, yeah. Very quickly. Uh, and it's no surprise to me. Right. And then they, they watched them for a while. And it became so overwhelming that something was wrong, they convinced a federal judge to give them 
allow them to start listening to their to their phone calls and then when they and then they they had watched long the FBI officer said look we listened long enough that the search warrant is only good for so long yeah that it was about to expire you know whatever whether it was a they got a 30 day or 60 I don't know but it was just about to expire when Kelly received a page or a phone call from you and you had a, um, scheduled a time and one you had you needed more money mm-hmm. so they were trying to arrange to send you more money and two they had arranged a time to, for you to call a payphone um, and but she wasn't there she missed the appointment or something because you know I guess she had better things to do than try and maintain the 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 um, the robbery, which is a big problem for criminals. They they once they get the money, they forget about maintenance. So, but the I guess they said the FBI was waiting. They had a tap on the phone. You called. She wasn't there. The office one of the FBI officers walks over because they needed to hear you. Yeah, walked over, grabbed the phone. And listen and said, hey, hello. And then you said something on the phone where they heard your voice. And then they were like, you know, I forget. I think he said, like, you said something. You had a little brief exchange. And they hung up the phone. But they were like, that's him. Like, we, we've got him. But you hung up so fast they couldn't get a trace. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's never come out in, the inter- in any of the interviews is I'm on the other end. And I'm timing our phone. Right. Phone calls. I bought a really expensive watch just for this. It's one of the extravagances I did. I bought a nice Omega, what was it? Dive Master. My, my memory's stretched thin, but it was a nice Omega watch. Um, and I'm watching the time every time we talk. And yeah. I'm keeping it around two to three minutes. Um, yeah, I was going to say, like now they'd know where you were oh, immediately yeah. but back then yeah you back did, then it took them time to trace it especially back, out of the country oh yeah back then um uh this goes back to me doing my, my research i found out that they they could ta- trace a phone but it took them two and a half to three minutes right um and like i said outside the country even longer because they've got to contact the country and deal with Back dealing with the Mexican government back then would have been a nightmare, I'm sure. So what were you thinking when you're in Cancun? Mm-hmm. You're in Cancun. You're hanging out. How long has it been? And and what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for them to figure out how to bring you your money? Yeah. Like what's, what's, what's going through your head? Well, I'm in Cancun and I'm moving from place to place. And... I'm starting to get concerned that this should have been easy. You can smuggle anything you want into Mexico. Into Mexico, yeah. Easy. Going south, easy. Easy as pie. And I'm like, all you had to do is box it up. Send it to UPS. Easy peasy. Stick it in a car. They're not stopping cars going into Mexico. You just drive down here. Yeah. Could have bought a hoopty. An old station wagon, van, whatever. Filled it up, drove it down, done deal. Forget about me. So, all right, but that's not happening. What 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 is happening? Do you know? Do you 
Um, the gist of it is they've had a, a, a meeting, and they've decided they're going to kill. They're going to kill me. Right. And he's going to hire. He's got a buddy, McKinney, and they're going to hire him. He's going to go down to Mexico and kill me. Right. And, and the FBI hears this. The FBI hears this, and that that's when they really start looking to figure out exactly where I'm at in Mexico. Right, because they have a bigger issue now. Yeah. Now it's not, okay, there's some missing money. We can print the money again. There's insurance. There's yeah. Now somebody's going to get killed. And they realize also that you know, there's bigger players involved and more serious players where you were doing something that was nonviolent. You were taking advantage of an opportunity. These guys are ready to start killing people. Yeah. They think they're gangsters. I went out of my way to avoid violence. Right. You know, I, I didn't because, and I know this sounds hypocritical of me, None of that money was worth a drop of human blood. Right. I, I would have set the money on fire before I would hurt somebody. So, so what? So, at what point? Or do you know that they're obviously they're they've got their their uh, phones um, tapped and they're listening? Do you know what happened? That and how did they the FBI figure out where you were? Um, I'm not sure exactly, but I had moved down to Cozumel and Playa del Carmen. And we're getting towards the end of it. See, that would have been January or so that year. Uh, and I'm talking to Kelly Campbell, and I hear a second click after she hangs up. And we'd had a conversation later. Listen, I told her, I told them, your phone's tapped. I heard a second click. Because that was one of the telltale signs back in the olden days that your phone was tapped. Um, you could hang on just a second and you'd hear hear them hang up. It go click, and then you hear a second click, right. and the tap would be broken. Yeah, because the 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 it was you know the the line was still alive. It was really yeah. like a second person yeah. holding the phone in yeah. the same room. Yeah. So they had to wait, and you'd hang up, and then they'd hang up. Yeah. Back then, it was very analog. Right. And so now I'm thinking. Something's not right. And McKinney had come down to Mexico and had brought me some money. Brought me like seven, excuse me, seven, eight thousand bucks, which made me suspicious. The way he acted made me suspicious. And the, the, the cherry on top of the cake was after he left, one of the guys, one of the Mexicans he was working with came by my apartment. His nickname was Gordo. He's a big guy. Um, and he says, you, you know that this guy is planning on killing you. And I'm like, that, I was shocked. And I, I tipped the guy handsomely. You were shocked? Shocked. Okay. I mean, because to me, it, it made, I was very naive, it made no sense. There was plenty of money for everybody. Right. Why don't just pay you and just. Pay me and forget about me. Right. I mean, they're they're from their perspective, and, and I'm only I, I'm only saying this because I I've watched you know the um, the documentaries and the the FBI agent was saying he's like the problem is is that from their perspective they're thinking everybody knows you took the money mm-hmm. nobody knows and from their mind obviously the FBI does know but they're thinking everybody knows that Gant took the money but they don't know who we are. 
Yeah. So if, if he dies, then it dies with him. He took the money. They find some money. They assume he's hidden the money. They'll never get to us. Of course, they already had gotten to them. But yeah. They didn't know that. So they're thinking, you know, cut off the, the head of the snake and then, you know, the whole thing will die down, mm-hmm. you know. Not that I think you. Not that I think that's a justified reason, no, but but you're not. It wrong. was their reason, yeah. you know. Um, but I don't know. I, I think I I took it personal for a long time, and I'm working with that. I'm working processing through that feeling of disgust. But oh, that's that's a whole different story. Um, um. So what what. What happens if the guy tells you that? What do you think? Are you thinking I'm fucking I'm out of here or? Um, weirdly, after this, every time I meet, he was calling himself Bruno. Um, every time I meet Bruno, it's in a very public place, and I've I've bought myself a knife and sharpened it up. Every time we meet, it's in public, face to face, and I don't let him you know, close to me. And we end up uh, staying in Playa del Carmen. He brought me some money. And this is right there at the end of it. And I'm at the Turtle La Tortuga Hotel when the FBI picked me up. They How, how did that happen? Um, It was weird because it was a very touristy town. Um, during the week, there's no gringos. Right. You know, I was an oddball. And then when there were three more gringos in town, it was a little strange. And I noticed them. I even talked to one of them at one point. And eventually I'd gone out to do laundry and they thought I was making a break for it. They thought I was running and they caught me coming back to the hotel and, uh, the FBI agent comes up and says, hey, Mr. Gant, I know who you are. Da, da, da. You're under arrest. And that was the beginning of the end, so to speak. Um, had had um, Kelly and everybody already been arrested at that point? Yeah, they had already arrested them, um, round them rounded them up. And they were, I think they had even got uh, Bruno at the same time. I, I want to say, and, and I don't know this, um, I do remember, and it's funny because I, I only watched a bit, a few bits and pieces. I'm really remembering this from seeing it 20 years ago. Um, I want to say that um, Chambers, they grabbed him and he told them where you were. I could be wrong. I do know that when they grabbed him, he immediately sp- oh yeah he, t- he rolled immediately over. rolled over on he everybody. rolled over like a, a hard boiled egg right so yeah. he, so they may he may have been he may have told them exactly where you were you know for for all for all I know or maybe they had been tracing the phones and they had figured out by that point I I don't know yeah. but but they grabbed you um, did they they bring you to a to a, a local police police station or did they bring you straight to the airport like no they the brought extra- me. Um, I spent the night with the Mexican uh, federales, and they were going to, big air quotes here, deport me from Mexico, okay? And they put me on an airplane flight that just happened to have 
two FBI agents. Right. So, okay. So they don't need to extradite you. Yeah. Um, so you show up back in, did you, where'd you fly into? Um, flew, I think we went straight to Charlotte. Okay. You're processed in by the, uh, marshals. Marshals right there in uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg. And they put me on the sixth floor, which is like their version of max. Okay. Um, because the story had, had exploded. Right. Um, um, what, so when, you know, when the, did they explain to you, Hey, these guys, they're going to kill you. Oh yeah. Uh, me and the FBI agent had a long, long conversation. We actually became friends oddly. Yeah. He, Um, he seemed like, look, I've watched a lot of these. Like he, he genuinely seemed to, to, to like you. And like, he, like, I've never seen one of these where they just didn't have, they had a lot of bad things to say about chambers. Mm Mm-hmm. They had they really portray them as just being bumbling idiots. But he, none of the FBI interviews portray you as anything other than just being a nice guy who was frustrated with his situation and saw the opportunity and took it. Yeah, like that's how they, and and, and that's not far from wrong, right? Um, I see myself as an opportunist, and I think most humans are opportunists if they. In the See, right circumstances. In the right yeah, circumstances, yeah. anybody would have done what I did. Um, so, so when you come back, you have a long conversation with them. Like, what's the conversation? What? Um, it. I told him my version of the story, and he asked more and more questions. And I, I think one of the things that kind of impressed him about me. This is, I'm going to make a huge assumption here, is I explained my logic behind everything and how I looked at the crime itself and told him about my research. And he's like, you, you, thought, you put a lot of thought into, I'm like, yeah, you guys are easy to beat on any given day. You, you approach every crime the exact same way. It's a chess game. If I know that you're going to lead with a, your pawn out in front and then a knight's coming behind it, I can figure out how to beat your ass. Yeah, but you you, you can't account for You can't account heads. for the, the, <laughs> the nine me and other things yeah. that can go wrong. Yeah. I, I said I always say whenever people say, well, do you ever think about crime? I'm like, or do you think you could get away with what you did um, today? I, I always think, yeah, I can, my my problem is you cannot account for the fly in the ointment. Yeah. Like you just, there's just, there's just no accounting for someone screwing up or a mistake or, you know, in this case, like had, had chambers, had they gone with the plan, let's, let's let them sit down there, wait a month or two, give them some money, wait a month or two, bring down a couple million, wait a couple, made another month, bring down a couple more million. Cause you never know if you're going to, to me, I'd be afraid. What if I get pulled over by the police? They search yeah. the car, if they get the money. Um, I would have been more like, Hey, let me bring you a couple million, wait a couple million, bring you the last million and you're good. You know, had they done that, then, you know, maybe you do get caught later. Maybe you go to Costa Rica, maybe something happens, you get caught later, but at least they followed that portion of the plan. Yeah. Um, but you know they, but you can't account for what happened with them. Was from the very get go, they decided to double cross you. Yeah, 
How are you going to figure that out? How do you know that? Yeah, how do you foresee that? And I I look back on it in hindsight. If we'd have got that money into a Cayman bank account, all of it, and you could he could have lived off the interest easy. I think the interest would have been seventy five, eighty thousand a year. If there was no interest, if you put five million dollars into you know, if you put $5 million and lived off of $50,000, you could live mm-hmm. for $50,000 in the Cayman Islands. Yeah. You, you might as well be making $300,000. Yeah. Um, but so, okay, so so what happened with a, a, you end up taking a plea? I mean, you can't go to trial. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> stupid. Um, almost no one that gets uh, goes to federal court Almost everybody takes a plea of some sort. Yeah, yeah. It's they've got like a, a what ninety seven percent conviction oh, yeah. rate. Um, unless you got big bucks, you can't fight the government. No, I so I, listen. I always say, look, even if you're guilty, you got a fifty percent chance of being found. I mean, even if you're not guilty, yeah. you have a fifty percent chance of being found guilty. Oh yeah. So, so what what uh, what, what did you end up taking? What was the uh, see? Was it ninety six months? It was like just a little over six years. Okay. Did you take RDAP? Was there an RDAP program, a drug program, um, to knock a year off? I'm not. No, well, obviously they you didn't, didn't take they it. Didn't, they didn't have it because um, they they told me, "Oh, there's no drugs in your case. You don't get this." Oh, okay. And so I got your standard issue, uh, good time, eighty the eighty five percent or whatever. Yeah. And uh, did you do all of it? And it, I did all of it, and I ended up going back because when I got. Uh, I realized that the halfway house was just an extortion, um, just a way for the for someone attached to the government to rob you. I basically said, and I went to I went to my hometown, and when I when we got down to Jacksonville, they arrested me, took me right back to Butner, and I did my the last six months in special housing. <laughs> did you get uh, home confinement? I mean, not home. Sorry. You got probation, right? Yeah. Supervised release. Yeah. How much supervised release? Two years. Um, and basically, um, as soon as I got out, I got a job. And after a while, the probation officer didn't didn't even care to see me. They had they had so many other basket cases bouncing around that part of Florida that that the the dude is showing up and working every day. They didn't, they, they weren't even worried about me. Yeah. That's, that's usually, yeah. um, usually how it goes. If you don't give them any problems, they don't, yeah, they, they don't, they, they'll leave you alone. They got enough guys giving them problems. Um, yeah. I was going to say, um, so you got, what, what, what are you doing now? Uh, I'm a heavy equipment operator for a construction company in Jacksonville. Um, Petticoat Schmidt, I've been there eight years, and I've been a con- in construction for about fifteen or seventeen. Okay. Um. Yeah, I was. Uh, so, I mean, okay. So, have you ever talked to the? Um, I know you did an interview when you got out of prison. Yeah. Um, but. You know, did you have you ever seen the uh, FBI agent or spoke with the FBI agent? Um, I met Mark, the FBI agent, at the the premiere of Masterminds, the movie that they did, and we just picked up our friendship like before. Met his wife; she was really nice. 
um, took a selfie with me. Um, and uh, I've, I've never wished him any ill will. Right, yeah. I mean, he's just, you know, yeah. he's just, he's just doing about, his job. He's yeah. doing his job. And uh, I, he's one of the few government, mostly when we think about government employees, we don't think real highly of them. But he was actually out there doing his doing the job that we pay him to do. Yeah, it's. I was gonna say the the there were, there were some nasty. There was a there was one na- really just nasty FBI agent on my case, mm-hmm. and you know the other ones were just like they're just. It's kind of like the guards. Yeah, it's like the guards that are there that are just like when, when you know I'm sorry it's COs when you go to yeah. prison like some of them are just complete sadistic assholes. Yeah, and the other ones are like listen man this is just a job like yeah. I just want to come. Punch the clock. Sit down. Yeah. Please don't bother me. Yeah. You know, let me get out. Let, let me do my thing. Let me go home. Like, those are the guards that are great. Even if oh, they're yeah. enforcing the rules. I don't mind that you enforce yeah. the rules, but you don't have to be a dick about yeah. it. Um, so, yeah, I, I had some of the Secret Service agents and FBI agents that were totally cool. I was totally cool with them. Mm-hmm. And then there was this one that was just a complete jerk. It he seems, seems like cool. always one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's always, yeah, that's the one that makes them all look bad. Yeah. Um. Well, okay, so... And and now and so why are you why are you in Tampa? Um, I came down. There's a a charity here in Tampa. It's called Forgotten Angels, and they help young people who have timed out on the uh, the adoption uh, program. Um, they've gone through their whole life uh, bouncing from house to house. A lot of them, you know, and when they turn eighteen, the 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 adoption houses. I'm not sure what the correct term is. They don't have anything to do with them. So a lot of them end up out on the street. Right. A lot of them turn to drugs or crime or whatever. And this this organization uh, works with them, helps them, helps them get their GEDs, get some education, their driver's license, job skills, and they help them get back on their feet. Yeah. And when I heard about it, I'm like, I, I, that's something I can get behind. You know, these a lot of these people that they're helping never got first chance and here I am with several chances in my life and if I can come down here and spend a little money with them and you know buy a t-shirt whatever and it helps these people helps these young people I don't mind it right I I actually wrote a a story about a kid named uh, um, Jacob Diaz and he was foster care and when it turned like I want to say 18 or 19 he just, they basically were, were like, hey, well, you know, you got to leave next week. And yeah. he was like, what? Yeah, here's a garbage bag. Put your stuff in it. Get yeah. out. And he was just like, he was like, actually, and his foster family was like, he was like, like, or the where he was staying. He was like, everybody was really nice to me, but nobody had even prepared me that no. this is something that's happening. And he said, I guess I should have known that, but I like, this was my home. And it just one day it was like, hey, bro, like, you know, next week you're leaving, right? Well, what do you mean I'm leaving? Where am I going? I don't know where you're going, but you're the key. Can't stay you here. Can't stay here. Right. You know, and a lot of those places, the, the kids that they take, take in are just a paycheck. Yeah. Each kid is valued at whatever. And they, when that they, check ends, you're, they have then no, no use for you. Yeah. And, uh, in a country that, like America, that this goes on, that this happens. And it, um, our government screws up a lot, but this, this could be easily fixed, you know. A, a program to help, they can improve that program easily. Yeah, just ease them back into society. Yeah. Get a job. Get a that. There's 
what's funny is like there's it's there's lots of jobs like there's lots of jobs and there's lots of jobs that you can make a decent living and and prepare and and take care of yourself you know but if you don't even know they're out there and you're not being prepared to 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 um kind of acclimate yourself into society yeah. or ease yourself into society to just be thr- have it thrust upon you you're not prepared for that as mm-hmm. an 18 year old yeah and they can do the same thing with the prison system and and I've I've told people well yeah, you want prison to be harsh. Cool. All right. I get that. What kind of, when they come out, what kind of, that guy's going to be your neighbor. Yeah. What kind of neighbor do you want coming out of there? Yeah. Do, do you, you want, want somebody that hasn't really changed? Or you want somebody, like one of, one of my greatest accomplishments when I was in is, and I had to do it on the sly because he was in the Muslim Brotherhood and he wasn't supposed to be associating with us crackers. And I helped this guy. He was f- better than 40. I helped him learn to read. And to me, that's one of my highest personal accomplishments. Right. You know, and granted, he didn't like me. I had no real reason to like him, but I helped him read. Well, and what's What's funny is that people want prison to be hard. Mm-hmm. They people get upset that, I, for instance, I did an interview with a guy the other day, um, and somebody in the comments section because the guy had ended up getting like a master's degree or or yeah. a master he got a college degree. I think he was trying to get his master's, but the guy was upset because he had gotten a college education while in prison. Now, granted, the guy had like twenty something, twenty five. I think he did twenty five or twenty six years. Yeah. So they was upset, like I can't believe that he's being taken care of and he got an education and. The th- my thought was the likelihood that he gets an education and gets out of prison and goes back is very low. Yes. If he doesn't get the education, there's a damn good chance he goes back to prison. Oh, yeah. So are you going to bitch about – are you bitching because – about recidivism or are you going to bitch because he got – you're giving him an education? Because you, you can only pick one to bitch about. Mm-hmm. So if you don't give him the education, he goes back, and now you're bitching about him going back to prison. Yeah. Or do you or get, let him get a get a job, become a, a paying tax paying citizen, and not go back to prison? Yeah. So you know, pick your battles, bro. Like, yeah. And he's he just did twenty five years. Is that not enough for you? Yeah. So, but yeah, it's a, we talk about that. Me and this guy uh, Boziak, that it really all not everybody, but some of the guys talking, and, and it is it's a the the reentry program is horrible. Yeah. Like like the idea that. You know, like me getting out of, I got out of prison. Had I not been preparing the entire time while I was in prison to get out of prison, I I literally would have gotten out with no money, seven months halfway house. They're taking what, 35% oh, yeah, of everything? Minimum. Gross. Yeah. Gross. So basically you're making less than a dollar. Yeah. You know, now me, I was, I made it, tried to make it a game to, 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 save as much as I could and live, you know, like I ate the bologna sandwiches every day. I ate yeah. all the free meals. I never paid. Like you could pay to upgrade and get a hamburger if you wanted to. Like I'm not paying nothing. Yeah. So I'm getting the bologna sandwich, whatever you give me for free. I'm sleeping here. I'm buying, I'm going to Walmart and buying the cheapest stuff. And I still got lucky because I happened to have sold an option and they re-optioned it. And I got a check a couple weeks after I got out. I happened to get a check for a few thousand. If not, I don't know what I would have done. Oh, yeah. And I had seven months to prepare. 
but you're starting your entire life over. Yeah. That's difficult. And if you don't plan at all, you're screwed. Oh, yeah. Rude. No, if you're not a planner and you're not bright enough to know this is coming, which most people just aren't. No. And it's not about being smart. It's having, well, it takes a little, but to plan ahead. And if you don't, if you're not a planner. Right. Then you're, you're done. Right. And listen, and anybody that thinks that there's some counselor in prison preparing <laughs> you, like, hey, you need to think about this. You need to, listen, those counselors don't no. want to see you at all. They could, no. they, they, they despise you. Oh, God, yes. It's, Most and of it's obvious, too. Yeah. It's like. You know, but they're like, oh, well, Mr. Gant, you need to program, but blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you want me to take the GED? I graduated high school. Right. I've, I've been in the military. I can read, write. I can do advanced math. You've got nothing to offer me. And that they, that just, all of that just, they wanted me to work in Unicor. I'm like, yeah, for I don't owe y'all a dime. I got angry back at them. I'm like, I don't owe you nothing. I had a counselor one time tell me that because one of my charges was identity theft. Mm-hmm. She said, um, identity theft. She went, you know, she said, I think she is. I think people like you. Oh, it, identity theft and, and fraud. She goes, I think people like you should be strung up by the by the um, uh, by the flagpole. And I said, well, thank God they don't do that. Yeah. And she just, you know, and she was, she just, she was just a nasty person. Yeah. Luckily, over time, she ended up liking me. But for the first, listen, for the first five years, mm-hmm. like five years is it a took, long time. It takes a long time to, to win, win over. someone over. Yeah. You got to be working at it. After five years, she started being civil. Yeah. Um, That's oddly not an uncommon attitude from them. Yeah. It's like we we should have probably just shot you, shot you. I'm like, Jesus. maybe you should have. It'd been cheaper, and, but then you'd be out of a job. Um, you know, I was gonna say it's funny because even the guys we were talking about, where I was saying they just come and it's just a job and they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, even them, although those are the guards I liked because you know they're just enforcing the rules and they're yeah. not, they have nothing in it. There's no skin in the game. They're still not going to go above and beyond. No, and the status quo is make sure they don't you know. Count them, feed them, but and, and that's it. Like yeah. as far as preparing them to go back into society, they're like, ah, they're grown men. They're fi- they'll figure it out. Well, if they yeah. could have figured out how to live and function in society to begin with, they probably wouldn't have been here. Yeah. Um, and I, this is kind of weird, but I look at is prison people getting out of prison is an untapped resource. These people show have shown that they're self starters. A lot of them are natural entrepreneurs. Why not harness that? I, I, I used to teach the real estate, you know, the ACE courses. Yeah. I used to teach the real estate one, and I used to go in there, and I would say, listen, real estate is the one thing that you guys can tra- – because most of them, 85% of the guys in my class were drug dealers. Yeah. I was like, it's the one thing that you got – you that the drug dealers, I said, will exceed at. Yeah. Because you're hustlers. Yeah, and they understand that – um, I was helping a buddy of mine do a math class, and we had twenty or thirty former drug dealers, and he was—they were struggling with fractions. I'm like, dude, you guys have dealt. How much is an eight ball? Yeah. Oh, that's an eighth. There you go. You've been using fractions your whole life, and once that clicked in their head, man, they took that that next math test and blew it out of the water. Yeah, I used to love they they would say, um. Well, I, I 
can't do it. I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm not smart enough to figure this out. I'm like, really? Really? You can tell me the starting lineup of the Super Bowl. You yeah. can tell me how much all these people make, how much this actor made or this this um, rap star, you can tell me, like, you know the stats for every single person playing in the NBA, but you can't remember this. Yeah. Stop it, bro. Like, yeah. don't don't give me that shit. Like, that's a, that's a cop-out. And, you know, eventually, yeah, they I ended up teaching the uh, the SLD class and, mm-hmm. G- and GED. It was the same thing. I had a guy that, I always think this is tragic. I had a guy that had taken the GED and failed it, like, twice, two mm-hmm. or three times. Not a, not a stupid guy. Yeah. Like, he just... He couldn't pass the essay portion. So they sat him in a room with me for about a week. We wrote multiple essays. I gave him a very simple formula. He went back and passed the GED, and including the essay portion. And uh, I was always like, like, that's great. Like, wow, that I did I know so I know what you're saying. Like yeah. I felt great about yeah. that. He died about two weeks later. Massive heart attack. Hmm. But you know, he you know, so it's not a great story. Yeah, it's not a great story. But it, you it's, know. but I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Um, so, okay. I mean, I feel, I feel like, you know, I feel like I've, uh, I've gotten everything I can get out of you. Uh, <laughs> what, I mean, you, can you, you can you think of anything else you want to say um, or clear up or? Well, I, I think the biggest thing I learned about prison is if you have to go, don't waste your time. Apply yourself. Pick up a book. Um, I spent years reading psychology books, self-help books, um, and just reading in general from everything from small engine of repair to science and history. And don't be the guy that spends your time living on your bunk. Did you did you kind of have a plan for what you figured you were going to do when you get out? Um. I had a general idea that I wasn't going back to North Carolina and I wanted to get away from anything that had to do with security and uh, I wanted to work outside Um, and I just wanted to change my life and so that's why I started looking at psychology books and self-help books and I had to fix I had to fix Dave first before that or everything else would fail okay i mean i i mean trust me i feel the same way like when i it i had a when i started writing like i my memoir mm-hmm. writing in my memoir and reading about writing and reading about that the things in your past have helped shape you and um and, and reading about that get, makes you do a lot of self-reflection and to me, that's like at that point, I had like a, I, I would say it was like a, it was like a fundamental shift yeah. in my attitude. I went from yeah. it was everybody else's fault to, no, it's my fault. It's my fault. I fucked up. I screwed up. Right. And then you have to go, okay, well, where do I fix this? Right. Why did I fuck? Why, why am I a walking can of worms? Right. And then figure it out. Yeah. I have a buddy, Pete, who always says, you, you cannot come to prison and continue to behave the way you did prior to prison and not expect to come back. Yeah. You know, and then that was really kind of like I yeah. took that to heart. And um, so, yeah, I, and now, now I'm here with you. This was David Gant's story. And I, uh, one, I appreciate you coming by obviously. And um, I appreciate you guys watching and uh, 
do me a favor, check out my Patreon. All of the links to my books are in the description box. See ya. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but when I was locked up, I wrote a whole bunch of true crime books, and all of the books are on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Audible, their eBooks. Check out the trailers. Using forgeries and bogus identities, Matthew B. Cox, one of the most ingenious con men in history, built America's biggest banks out of millions. Despite numerous encounters with bank security, state, and federal authorities, Cox narrowly and quite luckily, avoided capture for years. Eventually, he topped the U.S. Secret Service's most wanted list and led the U.S. Marshals, FBI, and Secret Service on a three-year chase while jet-setting around the world with his attractive female accomplices. Cox has been declared one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time by CNBC's American Greed. Bloomberg Businessweek called him the mortgage industry's worst nightmare, while Dateline NBC described Cox as a gifted forger and silver-tongued liar. Playboy magazine proclaimed his scam was real estate fraud, and he was the best. Shark in the Housing Pool is Cox's exhilarating first-person account of his stranger-than-fiction story. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Bent is the story of John J. Boziak's phenomenal life of crime. Inked from head to toe, with an addiction to strippers and fast Cadillacs, Boziak was not your typical computer geek. He was, however, one of the most cunning scammers, counterfeiters, identity thieves, and escape artists alive, and a major thorn in the side of the U.S. Secret Service as they fought a war on cybercrime. With a savant-like ability to circumvent banking security and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, Boziak made millions of dollars in the international cyber underworld with the help of the Chinese and the Russians. Then, leaving nothing but a John Doe warrant and a cleaned-out bank account in his wake, he vanished. Boziak's stranger-than-fiction tale of ingenious scams and impossible escapes, of brazen run-ins with the law and secret desires to straighten out and settle down, makes his story a true crime con game that will keep you guessing. Bent, how a homeless teen became one of the cybercrime industry's most prolific counterfeiters. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Buried by the U.S. government and ignored by the national media, this is the story they don't want you to know. When Frank Amadeo met with President George W. Bush at the White House to discuss NATO operations in Afghanistan, no one knew that he'd already embezzled nearly $200 million from the federal government, money he intended to use to bankroll his plan to take over the world. From Amadeo's global headquarters in the shadow of Florida's Disney World, with a nearly inexhaustible supply of the Internal Revenue Services funds, Amadeo acquired multiple businesses, amassing a mega conglomerate. Driven by his delusions of world conquest, he negotiated the purchase of a squadron of American fighter jets and the controlling interest in a former Soviet ICBM factory. He began working to build the largest private militia on the planet, over one million Africans strong. Simultaneously, Amadeo hired an international black ops force to orchestrate a coup in the Congo while plotting to take over several small Eastern European countries. The most disturbing part of it all is, had the U.S. government not thwarted his plans, he might have just pulled it off. It's insanity. 
the bizarre true story of a bipolar megalomaniac's insane plan for total world domination. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Pierre Rossini, in the 1990s, was a 20-something-year-old Los Angeles-based drug trafficker of ecstasy and ice. He and his associates drove luxury European supercars, lived in Beverly Hills penthouses, and dated Playboy models while dodging federal indictments. Then, two FBI officers with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force entered the picture. Dirty agents willing to fix cases and identify informants. Suddenly, two of Rossini's associates, confidential informants working with federal law enforcement, were murdered. Everyone pointed to Rossini. As his co-defendants prepared for trial, U.S. Attorney Robert Mueller sat down to debrief Rossini at Leavenworth Penitentiary, and another story emerged. A tale of FBI corruption and complicity in murder. You see, Pierre Rossini knew something that no one else knew. The truth. And Robert Mueller and the federal government have been covering it up to this very day. Devil Exposed. A twisted tale of drug trafficking, corruption, and murder in the City of Angels. Available on Amazon and Audible. Bailout is a psychological true crime thriller that pits a narcissistic conman against an egotistical pathological liar. Marcus Shrinker, the money manager who attempted to fake his own death during the 2008 financial crisis, is about to be released from prison and he's ready to talk. He's ready to tell you the story no one's heard. Shrinker sits down with true crime writer Matthew B. Cox, a fellow inmate serving time for bank fraud. Shrinker lays out the details. The disgruntled clients who persecuted him for unanticipated market losses, the affair that ruined his marriage, and the treachery of his scorned wife, the woman who framed him for securities fraud, leaving him no choice but to make a bogus distress call and plunge from his multi-million dollar private aircraft in the dead of night. The $11.1 million in life insurance, the missing $1.5 million in gold. The fact is, Shrinker wants you to think he's innocent. The problem is, Cox knows Shrinker's a pathological liar and his story's a fabrication. As Cox subtly coaxes, cajoles, and yes, cons Shrinker into revealing his deceptions, his stranger-than-fiction life of lies slowly unravels. This is the story Shrinker didn't want you to know. Bailout, The Life and Lies of Marcus Shrinker. Available now on Barnes & Noble, Etsy, and Audible. Matthew B. Cox is a con man, incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for a variety of bank fraud-related scams. Despite not having a drug problem, Cox inexplicably ends up in the prison's residential drug abuse program, known as RDAP. A drug program in name only, RDAP is an invasive behavior modification therapy specifically designed to correct the cognitive thinking errors associated with criminal behavior. The program is a non-fiction dark comedy which chronicles Cox's side-splitting journey. This first-person account is a fascinating glimpse at the survivor-like atmosphere inside of the government-sponsored rehabilitation unit. While navigating the treachery of his backstabbing peers, Cox simultaneously manipulates prison policies and the bumbling staff every step of the way. The Program How a Con Man Survived the Federal Bureau of Prisons' Cult of RDAP Available now on Amazon and Audible. 
If you saw anything you like, links to all the books are in the description box.